Hello, everyone. I'm Alex, and welcome to This Family Tree Podcast, episode 174. This is going to be a solo episode, and I'm very happy to sit with you all tonight. So for those of you who may call yourselves Shaniacs, I am sorry. It's just me tonight, but you know what? I'm excited about that. And among those Shaniacs is my own father, who has once said to me, and I mean, these are basically his exact words. Well, you know, Alex, I, uh, I like all your podcasts. I just think the ones without Shane are uh, not as good. So to dad, I am sorry, but guys, I am excited for this one tonight. So I want to talk about a question somebody sent in to me. And I'm going to read that question first because it's a huge topic and there are so many ways to cover it, but it has to do with being the primary caregiver and the impact that has on your marriage. So the question asker says, can you talk about how you've been able to quote unquote own the responsibility of being the primary caregiver without heavy resentment? I'm struggling with this and you seem to handle it well without all the rage and it not hurting your marriage. So this is a lot. And obviously like it's such, such a nuanced topic. So I'm the primary caregiver for I think a few reasons. I mean, the first one that I can point out is that Shane works out of the house a lot. Like it's it's as straight up as that. He works out of the house three days a week. And even though I'm out of the house five days a week, I'm here in the mornings. I'm here when the kids come home from school and I'm the one every night who is dealing with that. So three days of the week, he's not coming back until after their bedtimes. And that has a huge impact since those three days are school days. It has a huge impact on our routines and, you know, how that's going to affect our marriage and our roles in the household. And the second reason that I think I'm the primary caregiver stems back to maternity leave. So I think of maternity leave and I think of the fact that, you know, Shane took time off and it was amazing. Uh, But I was the one at home with the kid. He was only off for a month, which is so much more than the majority of people get. So I felt very, very lucky uh, because most husbands do not get really any time at all, which is a travesty. But when he went back to work, and again, he's gone early, he's home late because he commutes pretty far away. It's all me. I'm the one who is dealing with the baby every day, who's learning the intricacies of what to do and how they react to certain things and how to put them down without waking them, how to make them their certain foods. I'm getting the repetition in and he just can't because he's not there, right? And I am there. So I think this could easily be the husband in this position if maybe your husband's on pat leave and you're back at work. I just think it has a lot to do with who is kind of becoming the default parent solely by proximity to the kid and the amount of time that they're with the kid. It's a lot to pass on all that knowledge to your partner. Like it's impossible. And honestly, some days it seems I don't know, more exhausting to have to explain that to somebody else and watch them do it wrong and hear the baby crying rather than just go in there, swoop in, do it yourself, all is done, baby's sleep, baby's fed, whatever it is. It's hard. It's a long process. And you get stuck in that. 
So I think for a lot of moms and for myself anyway, I mean, I'll, I'll speak only for myself here, but I kind of started gatekeeping certain kid-related, baby-related tasks because I was like, I do them better. I do them faster. I may as well just do them because then we can enjoy our time together more and like actually relax. So when I made those choices, because I was making those choices and Shane was there and he was willing to help and ready to help if I wanted him to, you know, it would be unfair for me to start feeling resentful. And maybe sometimes I would, but I was really careful to kind of remind myself, hey, we're choosing this right now. Partner is here. Partner is willing to step in, but we're choosing this because we just want things over and done with so we can move on to the next, move on to the relaxation. So anyway, I think that's how I ended up as the primary caregiver, the default parent. And when it comes to being the default parent, I mean, I think the biggest difference between default parent and like, what are we calling it? Regular parent, norm core parent, I don't know but it's the mental load, all right? So it is, you know, the having to think of everything that you were thinking of and putting together and planning when that partner was gone. So it's like, even if Shane and I are home and we're doing the same thing, we're both on with the kids, you know, all weekend or whatever, the one who is doing the planning, worrying about meals, worrying about school the next week, about laundry, about playdates, birthday parties, that's me, regardless, like no matter what. And that's because, again, I'm the default parent. But at the same time, like I'm never sitting there thinking, hmm, I should make Shane the birthday party guy. He's going to keep track of all the invites and the getting of the presents and all that. I don't do that. I could, and I'm sure he would be receptive to it, but I just don't. For, for a few reasons, I guess. I don't know. Maybe because I just know he has other responsibilities that take up his time that, you know, have to do with the household. And this is something I don't mind doing. And if it ever gets too much, then I will reach out and get help from him. So when this person asks me, you know, how do you get through this without resenting your partner and it not hurting your marriage? That is assuming that I don't resent my partner ever. And I truly love Shane. He is an amazing co-parent, but hell yeah, I resent him. I don't know anybody who doesn't resent their partner sometimes for things related to, you know, domestic or household tasks. Like I'm thinking about the happiest people I know, whether they are, you know, have been married for 50 years, married for two years, whatever. I honestly cannot think of a couple who gets away completely unscathed. And I want you to sit there too. Think about it. Like, is there a couple who you can truly say doesn't ever feel resentment? I think that holding ourselves up to a standard of saying, oh, well, you know, it doesn't seem like they have any resentment in their marriage. That is so unhealthy. And that's going to really put pressure on us in an impossible way. How are we ever going to manage if we are constantly trying to be perfect and not feel any negative thoughts or resentful thoughts toward our partner? And it happens. 
I mean, like in the mornings, this morning, for example, okay, and Shane, I'm sorry, he's not here to defend himself. So you guys only get my perspective, not his. But this morning, you know, I wake up at 6.15, I set my alarm for 6.10 or 6.15 every single day because I know I have to get up and get myself ready for work. I often have to leave the house shortly after seven. And I know that the kids are going to wake up in between that time and they might slow me down. So I get up 6.15, you know, I start getting myself ready. At about 6.30, the kids start waking me up or they start waking up. They start slowing me down, cutting in my routine, not in a bad way. You know, I just, I had to start getting breakfast ready and then there's a tantrum over not having the right cereal or fruit or whatever it is. And it starts impacting my routine. Shane wakes up at seven and that's when he starts getting ready and he starts contributing to the morning routine with the kids because he often has a little more time than me at home in the morning. So this morning he slept until 7.10 and I am telling you for that 10 minutes, like every time the clock ticked by, I would look at it And I'd be like, where is he? And I would start to feel this just internal (laughs) rage. I thought I was going to combust. And then when he finally came out of the bedroom at 7.10, the whole part of my being, all of me, wanted to look at him with the most evil look I could muster and say, where the hell have you been? And just give him the sassiest tone that I could. And I didn't. I didn't because I didn't go in there at seven and say, hey, I'm running a little behind. I could use some help. In which case he would have said, hey, yeah, I'll be right out. I didn't do that. It was a choice. Maybe he just wanted that extra 10 minutes. Sometimes I take an extra 10 minutes. We're entitled to that. And if we don't know what our partner is going through, you know, how are we to know that we can't get just a little extra shut eye during a weekday when, you know, we think it's available. So it's on both of us. You know, he isn't expected to know what I'm thinking or know what I'm putting up with, just as I wouldn't know what he's putting up with if I'm the one sleeping in. So it gets tricky there. And honestly, for my own sanity and for the pleasantness of our marriage, I choose just to give the benefit of the doubt so often. And he does for me. Like, this is not one-sided. You know, he does the exact same thing for me because we just don't want to be frustrated with each other. We don't want to nitpick each other or nag each other. We want to keep, you know, nitpicking and nagging do happen, but when they need to, okay? Not when it is inconsequential. Because if you're doing that constantly oh my God, not only is your partner going to feel like they can't please you and that they are just, I don't know, a disaster and a failure and undervalued, but you're going to be miserable because you're only ever looking for the negative and you get caught up in those cycles of just looking for negative things and being disappointed and then finding more disappointment. And it's a nasty way to live. And, you know, I've been there and Shane and I have gone through phases where it's been like that, but it's never been the overarching theme of our marriage or of parenthood, co-parenting together. And I will say that things are, for the most part, 
really equitable when it comes to parenting. They're not equal, not even close, but they're equitable. Because I think about the hours that we're each putting in on our own, doing our own things, whether it's inside the house, with the kids, outside of the house, whatever. They're equitable hours. And then when we finally come together, we're both on and we're both doing the childcare. Like, I honestly can't think of a time when, you know, one of us has been sitting on the couch watching TV or something like that. And the other person has been doing some mundane parenting task or, you know, doing something to help with the house. We're both always on. And then when one of us is off, we're both off. So for us, that works so well because we tend to like doing those things together anyway. Like, I mean, this is down to grocery shopping, folks. When we have to go to the grocery store, we tend to just load up the whole family in the car, make an event out of it. We really like to make every task kind of like an event. Uh, And I know that's not going to work for every household. And this is something that you also can't feel resentful about is, you know, you see something working for one couple and then you think that that's the way to do it. That's, oh my God, that's the answer. They look so happy. They have this thing worked out and geez, wouldn't I love that? But it's like, it's not necessarily going to work for your own marriage, your own co-parenting relationship. And you have to be honest about that. And there's one situation I like to bring up and I may have brought it up on this podcast, but a friend once told me that you know, her husband would take turns bottle feeding the baby at night so that they could take turns sleeping. And I was like, man, Shane doesn't do that. I breastfeed all night. And I started kind of getting a little resentful. But then that night, you know, when I'm obviously feeding the babies, breastfeeding the babies, 4 a.m., 2 a.m., 1 a.m., every freaking half hour, I was thinking about it and I was like, hold on, this is what works for our relationship. Yes, I am taking the shitty brunt of the bedtime night feeding. This is hard, no doubt. But in the morning when I wake up, I'm going to go back to bed at 6 a.m. and I'm going to sleep until 9 or 10 and have uninterrupted sleep. And it's going to be amazing. And during that time, Shane is going to take care of the baby. Because if he was doing any nighttime feedings, he can't go back to sleep. He has to take melatonin every single night or do meditation or listen to podcasts. Like it's a big event for him to fall back asleep. For me, I shut my eyes and I'm done. So if I had him up during the night with me, oh my God, number one, I wouldn't get that four hour or three hour rest in the morning. And number two, we would both be so irritable. So why not have me do the nighttime shift? And then he's got the morning and it works out perfectly. And that's something that we worked out for, you know, with communication. And we have to remember that none of us, you know, pop out a baby and then are given a manual and saying, okay, this is how you parent. This is how you work things out as co-parents. We have zero experience co-parenting. Like, sure, maybe you've taken care of a baby brother, a baby sister, a cousin, but it's not the same as parenting with another adult who you love but may not see eye to eye with on everything. You have to work so much out for yourselves and we have zero experience. So I think a part of this, you know, not holding resentment and not letting it affect our marriage, I mean, sometimes it does and sometimes I do hold resentment, but overall, 
it doesn't have an impact on our marriage because we're getting better. Every year, every month that we're parenting together, we learn how to communicate something. We learn how to communicate a need. We learn how to share the load a little bit better, how to parent differently. And it's helpful. And I do think that in a lot of cases, you know, it might get easier over time. Granted, we have new issues, you know, as kids grow older, their problems are going to change and we might not see eye to eye over those, but hopefully we could be learning those skills along the way and in constant communication. Um, But plus, I honestly, I just think that Shane and I, the no nagging, no nitpicking, and we just like to have fun doing things and we don't take a lot of things very seriously. We take work seriously. We take family seriously. And I don't know, everything in between, you know, if something goes wrong, it goes wrong. If somebody doesn't do what you would have done, you kind of shrug it off. You choose to shrug it off. Because if you choose to get mad at it, oh my God, you guys, we're going to be mad all the damn time. And I don't know anybody who wants that. So I think for me and Shane, it's just about making choices choosing battles and choosing not getting pissed off over little things. So I hope that kind of makes sense. I know that was, you know, a long-winded talk, but I I really think that that's a fascinating topic and I think people are going to come at it so differently. And I'd like to see how my own thoughts on it evolve over time and how my relationship around that evolves over time. Because I think You know, it's always changing and it is so interesting. But before I get to the question segment, you guys, I discovered a musical artist over the weekend. I've talked about it on my Instagram so much. I can't stop. I I feel like I don't want to gatekeep this person. And I can guarantee, you know, if 200 of you go and go listen to him. Maybe 180 of you are going to be like, oh, not my thing. But those 20 of you that are like, yes, this is my thing. Oh my God. Join me in my obsession, please. I am telling you this so I have more people to talk to about the music. The name is Orville Peck. What's the category? Gay country? I don't know. It's awesome. He is a country artist, but he's like Elvis Presley, Roy Orbison, Johnny Cash, oddly Lana Del Rey. Phenomenal, theatrical, mysterious, so damn cool. Start off by listening to a song called The Curse of the Blackened Eye, but watch the video because you need to get in the whole vibe. You need to sit here and get in the whole vibe. You need to watch the video, put the headphones on, and just experience what is Orville Peck. It is so fun. And if anybody honestly ever wants to go to a concert with me and you live within, I don't know, 200 miles of me, let's do it. I would give my right arm to see this guy right now. But anyway, aside from that pop culture update, let's get on over to the mailbag segment. But before we do that, I'm going to tell y'all who we are supported by. We are supported by Mini Miosh. They're a premium, organic, ethically made, and sustainable kids and babies clothing company founded and created in Toronto. Mini Miosh believes in quality over quantity, and they make the best basics out there for your littles. These are fashionable wardrobe staples that are soft, like very, very, very soft 
comfy and timeless and can be passed from child to child regardless of gender. Their organic cotton fabrics are knit and dyed locally using GOTS certified organic cotton and low impact non-toxic dyes. They also have a women's collection out. So this is huge news. It's been out for only a year and I live in it folks. I live in it. The second I get home from work, I'm throwing it on. It's the same simple, soft clothes that you're very jealous of your kids for having. It's made out of French terry, ethical and sustainably produced like everything else. You can find the company online at minimiosh.com or at minimiosh on Instagram and Facebook. And if you use the promo code thisfamilytree15, you're getting 15% off your order. This is available in Canada and in the US, and it is one use per customer, so load up your cart. And again, that is minimiosh.com and thisfamilytree15. We are also supported by True Earth. And if you listen to our podcast, you know that Shane and I have been trying to reduce our environmental footprints over the past couple of years. One way we're doing this, and honestly, an easy way to start doing this, is just by eliminating single-use plastics in your households. And you can even start with one item. We started with plastic laundry detergent bottles. Stopped buying them. It was like, they took up so much space in the laundry room. They were a mess. It's a waste of plastic. And so little of the plastic that we actually recycle finds its way into recycling facilities to be reused again. So we discovered True Worth Laundry Detergent, and it has been the best discovery. The detergent itself comes in pre-measured soluble strips that you simply rip apart and put in your washer. It is so easy. And the best part is that there's no plastic. The packaging is compact and it has drastically changed the tidiness of our laundry room. Like we just have so much less stuff in there right now. And as a family with kids who have really sensitive skin, we typically opt for the baby detergent because it's fragrance-free, gentle on everyone's skin, and it's still so tough on dirt. Our clothes come out smelling great and super clean. So check out True Earth Detergent at true.earth and use the promo code thisfamilytree10 to get 10% off your order. You are going to love this product. Please take my word for it. Again, that is true.earth and thisfamilytree10. All right, babies. And now we are in the mailbag segment. This is the part of the podcast where every Friday, maybe some Saturdays if I'm slipping or sick or busy, but every Friday or Saturday, I ask you all, a question on my Instagram, in my stories, to send in topics, questions for this part of the podcast. And this is where we get to connect. And I really do love it so much. So the first question we're getting to tonight, are relationships with or without children more likely to last and why? So it's interesting. Um, I was on another podcast. I don't know if you guys ever heard it. It was called Children Ruin Everything Podcast. And I did it with Shane's buddy, Mike Veerman. And it was the official, I don't know, supporting podcast for the show Children Ruin Everything, which was a pretty big hit in Canada. It was very cool. Very good show. Highly recommend it. But the whole show is based around the fact that, like it tells you this in the first 10 seconds of the first episode, people or couples with children are statistically less happy than couples without children. And that is studied and it's been studied for decades and the evidence is pretty conclusive. And I know our, you know, as parents, our first reaction is kind of to balk at that and be like, well, that's baloney. I'm happy. Kids are so fulfilling. And they are, they are. And this is general happiness that the studies are talking about. It doesn't take into account, like, I think there's something they call overall life satisfaction, um, the amount of joy you have, things like that, okay? It is very nuanced. But 
yeah, for around 30 years, researchers have been studying this. And the results are that, okay, I'm going to read this part so I don't get it wrong. The rate of decline in relationship satisfaction is nearly twice as steep for couples who have children than for child-free couples. And if the event happens that a pregnancy is unplanned, the parents experience even greater negative impacts on their relationship. But what's kind of funny, I mean, if there is anything funny about this, is that even as, you know, the happiness within the couple's relationship declines, the likelihood that the couple is going to stay together actually increases. So, yeah, you might be miserable, but you're going to have company in your misery because you're likely, there's a greater chance that the relationship will continue going. Um, That is not to say, like, have kids to save the relationship. Terrible advice. Please do not do that. Please do not recommend that anybody does that because it is hard. Like, we just spent the whole top of this podcast talking about, you know, how difficult it is to keep resentment out of your marriage with a spouse you love and respect and are attracted to. Imagine having kids and trying to keep resentment out when there are mega issues with your spouse and maybe you don't feel that connected to them or in love with them. Like that is, oh my goodness, a special kind of hell that I would not wish upon many people. That is tough, okay? I mean, there are ways out of that obviously, but that's that's not something you would ever want for yourself, I'm sure. So yeah, couples are happier without kids, but relationships are likely to last longer with kids. So kind of all over the place. There. The next question, who is more likely to cheat, men or women, and for what reason? I'm just going to count to three and all of you sitting in your car or on your couch or with your headphones on wherever you are, we're just, we're just going to say it together, okay? Make your guess. One, two, three, men. It's men, obviously. <laughs> it's men. It's cliche because there is so much truth behind it. Not to say that women don't cheat because a lot of them do, but men do cheat more. So there were all these Gallup polls done. And 91% of people say infidelity in a marital relationship it's wrong it's morally it's morally wrong don't do it yet 54% of americans say that they straight up know somebody whose partner is unfaithful or who is unfaithful to their partner so that's i mean a lot of people and like there was another study done and they asked men and women how many of them that were married had cheated of the men admitted to it and 13% of women admitted to it. And again, these are only the people admitting, right? So we have to assume that the numbers are a little bit higher than that because I I imagine that people are scared to admit it, even if it's just to a survey, who knows who's going to be looking over your shoulder, right? So a lot of people, unfortunately, do cheat. And why do they cheat? So I was looking, I got information. There's a woman named Carmen McGinnis. She has so many degrees. She's a behavior analyst. And I was reading a few articles by her and she said it kind of falls into five categories. 
The first one being opportunity. And like this one makes the most sense to me, right? It's you're with somebody a lot or with somebody for the first time and you have the feeling that, okay, I could do something here and nobody is ever going to know. That kind of thing. Uh, The second category is wanting to be a different person. So maybe your cheating partner makes you feel a certain way. Three, wanting to break up with your partner and looking for an out. Four, wanting a wake-up call in your relationship, you know, a moment or an opportunity where you and your partner can look where you're at and say, okay, like, do we want to break up or do we want to make our relationship better? And then number five, straight up excitement. You like the feel of doing something naughty, doing something illicit, doing something you shouldn't be doing and it makes you feel alive, whatever it is. Those are typically the reasons why people cheat. And they're like kind of umbrellas, I'm sure, for a whole bunch of other things. But it's tricky and it's, I don't know. To me, it's always kind of a scary topic. Like, I never want to think of my partner cheating, my friend's partner's cheating, but it obviously happens. And like with the people that are using it as a wake-up call, in a lot of the articles I was reading, people were saying that sometimes and this is not for everybody, but sometimes the cheating was the best thing that happened in their relationship because then they learn how to grow, how to communicate their, you know, physical needs, their emotional needs better to their partner. And they just learn so much through the process. And I imagine, you know, that helps, especially if you're like seeing a therapist and somebody who can actually help you work through things in in a healthier manner. The next question Sammy Sheen referred to herself as a sex worker. All her work is on OnlyFans. Do you consider that to be a sex worker? So I had to look her up. Sammy Sheen is just Charlie Sheen and Denise Richards' daughter. Beautiful girl, 19 years old, so like super young. But she recently went on air or went to print saying that her label as a sex worker has been difficult for her family members to swallow. Um, But yeah, I guess, would I consider it sex work being on OnlyFans? Yeah. I mean, and I'm saying this with no judgment on sex workers whatsoever, but you're in the business of, even if you're not the one whose body they're tangibly getting pleasure off of, they are still getting sexual pleasure from your body, you know, even if they're doing it to themselves. I just don't know what, like I I struggle to kind of define it in any other way. So yeah, I consider it sex work. And again, no slag on sex work saying that. The next question. My five-year-old wants her ears pierced. I think I'd want to wait until she's a little bit older, but I'm not sure. What age do you think is appropriate for ear piercing? Okay, look, I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario, which has a huge Polish, Portuguese, Italian, Croatian, South American population. And so many, I, I don't know why it's the Catholics that do this, but lots of Catholic babies basically come out of the womb with pierced ears. Okay, so I grew up just assuming all girl babies were supposed to have their ears pierced. And it wasn't until I met Shane Because I was like, yeah, you know, I'll have the kid before her baptism. We'll pierce her ears. And he was like, um, sorry? 
what do you want to do to her ears? And I said, yeah, we'll get them pierced, throw some, you know, cute little gold studs in there and she's all set. And he's like, Alex, we're not piercing her ears. And it was a discussion. It was like, I kind of got a little upset for a minute too. But you know what? In the end, I was like, you're right. I I was just kind of doing it because it was a habit. It kind of came out of my upbringing, my Catholic culture, I guess. And it was very common. But it isn't common to everybody. But because I grew up with it, I mean, I don't think there's an age. I think when they want it, like Lucy is old enough to be asking for it, uh, her ears pierced. And when she does, you know, she just turned five. But I've been kind of hoping that she'd ask since she turned three and she hasn't yet. And she knows that when she is ready, we are going to make a day of it or an afternoon of it, whatever. Go out for lunch, pick out some beautiful earrings, get her ears pierced. It's going to be a thing. Um, And she knows we're ready. So we told her that we're waiting on her because she used to be interested. Uh, And now the novelty's died off a little bit. But when it does come back, honestly, I don't. I don't necessarily think there's an age. I think that if they're ready, they're ready and uh, you're going to be helping them take care of it anyway. So yeah, if your daughter's ready and you're comfortable with it, go for it. But if you're not comfortable, talk to her a little bit more. Wait, like nothing's saying you have to do that right now, right? Okay, the next question, and I really like this one. Kelly Clarkson said she didn't get a push present and that was a red flag for her. I never got one. Are push presents really that important? And how many people do them? Who gives an S? Okay, who gives an S? This is, again, what we were talking about off the top. Oh my God, that conversation relates to everything. But you cannot look at somebody else's relationship, look at how somebody else handles birth and postpartum and expect those things to just automatically take shape in your own life. So I had no idea what a push present was, okay, when I gave birth to Lucy. Like, had not heard of it until literally right before I gave birth to Betty. So with Lucy, I was not expecting one. I don't think Shane knew they existed either. And I didn't get one. Instead, I just got, like, the amazing moment of giving birth to my baby and having a spouse to kind of celebrate it with. Um, Yeah, no push present. And then when I heard about them, I was never like, oh man, I didn't get one. I wasn't pissed off about it. I wasn't resentful about it. I was just like, oh, that's a thing. Interesting. So then when I was about to give birth to Betty, I sidled up beside Shane on the couch, you know, eight months pregnant. I had some beautiful earrings that were gold, but not too expensive. Didn't want to break the bank. Um, and I was like, Hey baby, I'm about to push another child out of this vagina. Do you think that you want to get me these earrings to say thank you? And he was like, yeah, sure. So there you go. Got a push present for that one. I put it in his face, told him exactly what I wanted, took the pressure off. Basically, I just want an excuse to have those earrings, guys. Don't get upset if your partner has no idea about what a push present is. Don't give yourself, you know, the opportunity to get disappointed by the fact that maybe it's not the push present you wanted unless you're going to be super explicit about it. So yeah, it's definitely a thing, but I don't think it's a thing to put too much importance into. And if it is important to you, honestly, 
tell your partner exactly what you're expecting so that you don't get disappointed. That's my recommendation. And the last question for the night is by a new uh, question writer inner, and they say, where do you live? And you know what, question writer inner? That sounds creepy coming from you. So I'm not going to answer that. But folks, thank you so much for listening tonight. And as always, it would mean so, so much to us if you went on into our Apple reviews, Spotify reviews, wherever you listen to us, give us a five-star rating, leave us a comment, let us know what you like about the show. Honestly, it would make such a huge difference in our hearts more than anything. But folks, thank you so much for listening to This Family Tree Podcast, episode 174.